Well, we've been uh, in Mark's gospel for, for uh, some time now, since September. And uh, last week we talked about that incredible experience that, as Kevin has reminded us of, Peter, James, and John had up on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured uh, before the eyes of, of these three disciples. And um, it was an incredible mountaintop experience for them spiritually. And last week I referred to the fact that many times in the Bible... It seems like mountains are significant places for spiritual experiences for different people, God's people, throughout the ages. And and it is, is, metaphorically speaking, it is very much true for us, too. We will have, in our relationship with God, times of, of mountains and wonderful times where we feel close to Him and we behold His glory in a special way. And the thing about the mountains is that we've got to come down from them. We can't stay up there. We can't live up there. A mountain may be a difficult time in your life. It may be a wonderful time in your life. Really, the, the circumstantial stuff around the experience is not as important as the residue that's left on you after you've done it. In other words, it's not so much about... about uh, the circumstances you face in that mountaintop experience, but rather it is, are you being changed by it? Having beheld more of Christ, having been brought closer to him, are you carrying that, some of that with you when you enter into the valley below? And the word we, we used last week, that the scriptures used, is metamorphosis. That's a common word many of us understand. And the, the word metamorphosis used... It means a change, but not just any change. It's not like conformity change, which is from the outside in. It is transformative change, which is from the inside out. It really means a change in essence. And so when it's used of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, it is talking about him physically having a physical change in the essence of his body. The glory of Jesus, the Son of God, which was robed For 33 years as he walked around on this earth, that glory of being God in the flesh leaks out and the essence of his physical being is such that his face shone like the sun, his his body or his his, uh, clothing, it says, was like flashes of lightning. And Peter, James, and John are terrified. And they're having this incredible opportunity to behold the glory of God. Now, when the same word, this Greek word, metamorphosis, when it's used of believers, like you and I, it doesn't refer to a physical transformation, it refers to a spiritual transformation. The change that happens in our hearts and results in a changed behavior. And it it results in us becoming more and more like Jesus. God is just knocking off everything about you and I that doesn't look like his son, who's perfect, Jesus. And so the, the, the theologians call this sanctification, being made holy. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, when Paul uses metamorphosis, he says that we are being transformed, metamorphosized, from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree. Of, it's, it's just like it keeps on happening. We're in a process. And as we behold the Lord more, he transforms us more to be like him. That's the way it works. So we can't live up on the mountains. We've got to come down. Because the places of change that happen on the mountains are one kind of change, but the real significant change that takes place in our lives don't happen on mountains. They happen in valleys. They happen in the normal course of life. You know, 
I, I, I came to discover this, actually, when I was a very young boy. I would go every year, every summer, to camp, Bible camp. It was called Camp Hermosa near Lake, on Lake Huron, near Godridge, Ontario. And I didn't even know at the time, because I didn't speak Spanish, I didn't know that Hermosa, it means beautiful. But uh, it was a beautiful place for me because every summer I got to know more Christian friends. I didn't go to a, a high school where there were many Christians that I knew. Um, and I got to study the Bible and have counselors that were so neat. And, and, I, and I had this incredible mountaintop experience at camp every summer. And then I would go home and I would just hit bottom. Like I would get depressed for three or four days. And that was just a regular thing every summer. And, and the thing is, I knew, I came to know, I didn't know it then, but I came to know that the real growth of my life, the real maturity in my life, was not reflected in the camp experience, but in how you walk it out after you get back from camp, and what stays with you that, that is, is part of the real change. So as Mark, the gospel writer in Mark, tells the story of the disciples, he really wants us to see He's using them as a case study to see that as we've come down from the mountains, that's where some true growth takes place. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 9. And uh, we're going to start by reading in Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. Would you stand with me as we listen to God's word? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you, and how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to the feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind come out only by prayer. And they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. May God bless his word. You may be seated. 
You'll notice in the green insert in your bulletin, um, I, I have a quote there from Norman Wright. And it says, People often suppose that the early years of a Christian's pilgrimage are the difficult ones, and that as you go on in the Christian life, it gets more straightforward. The, the opposite is frequently the case. Precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks. End of quote. This is what Mark wants to demonstrate in the lives of the apostles in this story. We see this a couple of ways. First of all, we, we know that the disciples, the twelve, had been authorized by Jesus to go out in his name. Jesus has already sent these guys out on a mission trip. And he authorized them to teach in his name, to, to heal, to drive out demons. And they actually had a degree of success in doing so during that at time. And, and yet, in this moment, they are unable to drive out this evil spirit from this boy. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they face uh, a certain amount of failure here. Ministry was getting harder. Having authority and being able to use it are two different matters. And ministry is getting harder, not easier. The second thing we see that in the first half of the gospel, we've noticed as we've been studying it, the first half of the gospel, Jesus talks so often in parables, and the disciples don't understand him because they think he's talking in concrete terms. You know, they think he's talking about wheat and things like that, and, and they don't get it, and so he has to take them aside sometimes, and he explains the meaning of the parable just to the twelve. Well, now, in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, in the second half of, of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is not talking in parables anymore. He is talking in concrete terms. The Son of Man is going to die and three days later be raised. But the disciples still don't understand Him because now they're so used to Him talking in parables that they think there's some hidden meaning. And so they're missing the point. We see this, for example, in chapter 9, just earlier in the text that I read. The three of them are coming down the mountain, verse 10. And it says, they kept the matter to, this, uh, to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Jesus just told them that the Son of Man is going to die and rise from the dead. And they're trying to figure out some symbolic meaning to rising from the dead. Rising from the dead just means rising from the dead. But see, they're, they're stuck here now. So, so we know that Life is getting more difficult for the disciples, and ministry is harder. And in fact, you might think that parables are harder, but actually straight, direct, concrete teaching is harder for them to swallow here because this is not the discipleship they signed up for, and it's hard for them to understand this kind of Messiah. And so um, let's get to take a look now at our, our first point of this morning and, and I'd like to start by talking about this mountains to valleys idea. The, the fact that we have to confront the realities of our lives most often in valleys and use our faith there. As we look at this story, we cannot help, as Kevin has reminded us, we cannot help but feel sorry for the nine other disciples that didn't get to go up on the mountain, the crummy day that they could have had. And think about all the characters that are present in this story. Here they, other three are up on the mountain having this glorious experience with Jesus and they're duking it out with demons down in the valley. And in the midst of all this, it's not, it's not enough that they, they have to deal with this sick boy and this, this evil spirit that is, is, is bothering him, but, but they have to do it ahead of a crowd. I mean, it says here that there's a huge crowd that gathers and this crowd is, is just 
honestly, they're just spectators. They're just vultures looking for some entertainment. I mean, they hear a, a writhing, screaming, foaming thing happening. They run to the scene and they see the nine disciples trying to figure out how to help him. You know, it's like, it's like going to a schoolyard and just yelling, fight! You know, and it's just boom, they're there. And they're, and they're just, just there for spectators' sport. But among them, there's another group, it says here, that teachers of the law are among them. And these are the people that followed Jesus around in his ministry and were always heckling him, always reminding him of what the law stated, always reminding him that he shouldn't be doing certain things certain ways. And they're there with the nine, and they're criticizing how they're doing things. There's also the, the worried father present. Incredible, poor man. Here he is, he's, he's desperate for someone to help his son. And um, you can imagine it this way. You can imagine that you've got a child, and this child is sick. And there's only one, there's one surgeon at the Mayo Clinic you know that does this, this kind of surgery, and he's, he's signed you up. You, you go to him, you go to the Mayo Clinic, and you fully expect that you're going to get the treatment that that surgeon is going to give your child. And when you get there, you find out that this first-year medical class is assigned your, your, your child instead of Jesus or instead of this surgeon. And, and so instead of getting the expert, there's this group of buffoons that are, that are learning on the way, experimenting on the way with your son, your daughter. That's, what, that's what's happening here. Notice that in the text it says the man, when he talks to Jesus, he says, I brought you my son. But your disciples couldn't help him. So you can just deal with this. You can feel this man's pain as he deals with this group of men trying to help his son. And then there's the son himself, this poor boy. And again, our hearts go out. We think about he's victimized by evil spirits. He's victimized. He's wounded right before their eyes, and they are helpless to help him. What a difficult time this was. I wonder, and you may not like me making this comparison, but I wonder if the nine disciples sometimes resembles the church today. That we are living out our faith in the middle of the marketplace in a faithless generation. And people are bringing their wounded to us. And people are coming to us with their own wounds. And they're coming to us with, with realities that they don't make sense of. And nobody else has been able to help them. And they check the church out. Expecting that because the church represents Jesus, they should be able to help. But what did they get instead? Sometimes they get a group of people that have other priorities, not even concerned with them. Sometimes they get a group of people that are infighting, talking about technique. How do you heal this guy? Well, you shouldn't do that. Do it this way. It's a really, really difficult application. But sometimes people come and bring others to us and we're ill-equipped. So there are a couple of lessons that I think right at the get-go we we can apply to ourselves. The number one lesson is that most of spiritual, the spiritual battles that we face will not be faced on our mountaintop experiences, but in our valleys. It's easy to worship God and sing the songs on Sunday morning, 
But on, on, on Monday morning, how is the rest of it left upon you to live out your faith where you live your life? We're called to live our faith out through, by, before a watching world where there are critics and hecklers, and they will bring us their problems and fears and worries, and we will be confronted by the incredible diversity of human need, and then it is when our faith is exposed for what it really is authentically and whether or not it reflects the master we worship. But besides these outward obstacles, we also have inward obstacles, as I've referred to. We've, we've got our own unbelief. We, we, we've got our own sense of having our foot in both worlds. We've got our, our own spiritual lethargy to drag around with us all week long. And besides that, we've got each other. And sometimes you don't look so good. You know, as I'm sure I don't look so good sometimes. You know, we, we've got to get this figured out together. Just as the nine couldn't figure it out together, we, we sometimes fight with each other on how to figure it out together. So in between our times of intimacy, our mountaintop experiences, where it was black and white and glorious, it's sometimes not so black and white and glorious. It's, it's there where our faith is tested. And I want you to know, I, I identify more than anybody else in this text. I identify with the nine disciples. I identify with the nine. Many times have I been in hospital rooms and I have mustered the, the courage to to, to pray out loud and uh, with a deaf person. <laughs> yes! Let's pray! And all the staff are listening. Or you're sharing the gospel. You're telling them about God. And, and everybody's listening. How many times have I been in conversations and I know that I'm meant to insert Jesus into this, in this conversation because if nobody else in the circle does, I know it's not going to happen. And I insert what God says about something. And you know, that's difficult. Many times have I been <clears throat> in situations where I've sought up to uphold the reality of God in a godless world. Or counsel someone to draw near to God. Or shared the gospel. Many times have I prayed for someone's healing or salvation. And many times I feel like the Lord just is completely abandoning me. Kind of like I, I laid it all out in the line, just you thought, I thought you told me to do this, God, and God doesn't show up. And you look like the buffoon. I can identify with the nine. And yet I can say to you at the same time that though the entire world may stand and criticize, it still remains to me the only way to go. No wonder we feel lonely on this earth sometimes. We've been called to express and live out our faith in a place where unbelief is the default setting. And you're going to look stupid when you live your faith life. You're going to look stupid. You're going to stand out. There are going to be people criticizing and standing around and looking and laughing, and you're not going to be understood. But in the midst of that school of humility and failure, God's going to teach you something important about faith. Let's go on to our second point, and that is from unbelief to faith, fighting to be a believer in an unbelieving generation. One of the most impacting parts of this story is in verses 20 to 24. When Jesus arrives on the scene, 
And if you think about it, Jesus could have done any number of things legitimately when he arrives on the scene. He, first of all, he could have confronted the teachers of the law, which he did many other times, and said, well, we leave my disciples alone, quit bothering them. He could have uh, preached to the crowds. We've got a whole crowd here. Let's, let's, let's preach to them. He could have, he could have um, talked to the disciples, taken them aside and, and corrected their malpractice, you know, given them a lesson right, right away. But he doesn't do any of those things. What he does is he takes the father of the boy aside and has a private consultation. In the midst of all the bedlam, confusion, and chaos, and crowds, and everything that's going on, Jesus takes a moment just with that boy. I mean, coming down the mountain, seeing the chaos below in the valley, seeing what's going on, Jesus hones in right at the source of the issue. The issue is there's a man here that's brought his son, and I'm going to deal with the man. It's amazing, I think. An incredible lesson. What Jesus finds in this man is not the same as what he found in his hometown of Nazareth, which we read about in chapter 6, where it says that he was amazed at their unbelief. Nor does he just find a man who's desperate for some answer to his son's problem, whatever it may be. He actually finds a man who's desperate for his son's healing, but he's also desperate for his own healing. And we get that in the text, and I want to share that with you. He evidences an honesty about his own heart. In verse 22, in Mark chapter 9, the man says to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And the response of Jesus in verse 23 could be read two different ways. And the New International Version that is in our Pew Bible reads it one way as if it's a question. But there is another way that many manuscripts of the Greek text use that is not at all a question. So the NIV suggests that the man says, If you can take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds by saying, almost sounds like he's defensive, like Jesus is defensive. If you can, I mean, like, you think I can't do this? Like, that's, that's the way the text in the NIV seems to read. It's like Jesus is on the defense, like, what, do you think I can't do this? Anything is possible if you believe. But the actual, there's many manuscripts that actually reverse the if you can and puts it on the man that's saying it's all about him. So Jesus turns the if you can around and he says, well, it's not, it's not about me being able to do something. It's about you. If you can believe, everything is possible or anything is possible for him who believes. And I think that rendering makes more sense because the very next thing that the man says is, I do believe, but I also unbelieve. Help me in my unbelief. You see, I think that this man in this text is an example of a believer trying to live in an unbelieving generation. And I think that this man is an example to us of, of one who had a mixed heart, partly pure with believing and wanting to believe, and partly impure with having all kinds of wrestling and struggling and not believing. And I can identify with that too. I'm not sure why, and I'm not picking on the NIV this morning, but there's, two, there's another thing I need to say. That in the Greek text, the word tears is used when the father responds. In other words, the NIV says that the father responds and says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me, help me overcome my unbelief. Okay, now, now listen to this. Tell me if this is kind of flat. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed. 
Or does this sound like a better rendering in the New King James Version? It says, The father of the child cried out and said with tears. I have no idea why these people that translated the NIV made it that way, but that's, what it, that's the rendering. The, I looked it up, and the word is cr- not just cried out, which is exclaimed here, not just cried out, but it says with tears. See, I don't think this man is just crying out because of his son. I think he's crying out with inner problems of his own faith journey that he's struggling with. And so, I want to say to you today that there is a difference between stubborn unbelief and repentant unbelief. The stubborn unbelief is what Jesus found in Nazareth when they said, Get out of town. Who do you think you are talking like that? They stubbornly refuse to believe Jesus. This man knows he's got unbelief on his heart, but he is repentant. He is saying, I know that that you're all about the truth and you're right, but I can't believe. Help me in my unbelief. I relate to that. Can not all of us relate to that? Can you not say that in in any given situation that there is not areas of your life where you're saying, yes, God, it's all about you and I'm going to follow you and I believe in you and there's another area of your life you could point to and you could say, I'm really having a tough time letting go of that for you to be Lord. I think that's us more often than not. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, that's why he says, fight the good fight. Later in chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. But he says, fight the good fight. And then he says, holding on, holding on to faith. Why does he say it if there's not an actual possibility that we could actually lose faith and live as anemic and baby Christians? and even shipwreck faith. It requires effort to keep the faith when you see yourself slipping away and starting to believe lies. When you have your mind being filled with with social media and TV shows and, and all kinds of other stuff that is just barraging you every day and every night and you don't let yourself be transformed by the renewing of your mind with the truth of God, you start to lose faith. You start to believe some of the lies that you're being told all week long. And so it's a fight. Now, if it's not a fight, there's, there's one of two reasons why it's not a fight. Maybe it's an area that God has given you peace and resolve on, and you're, you're, you're maturing beyond that area of fighting. You're resting. Or else, you just step back from the fight, and it's not even fighting anymore. You're just giving in. But, but regardless of how you describe it, faith on this earth is a fight. Next year when we go through the book of Joshua, we'll be talking a lot about the fighting, which is a, a metaphor of the Christian life. When we get to Ephesians in the latter part of the year, we're going to be talking about chapter 6 where Paul says, take up spiritual armor. It's a fight. And we need each other to help encourage us in the fight. The good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. So I believe this father in this story is an example of one who was fighting to be a believer in an unbelieving generation. And I think that 
we can all bring to the Lord the same desperate heart and say, God, I, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Do you know that, that one of the best definitions of faith that I've heard is that give, you give over all that you know about yourself to all that you know about God. I don't think it's any simpler than that. And if there's wrestling in that, that's okay. Just don't close the door to God. Don't, don't say he can't do something. Just give it over. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You can do that. That's an honest prayer. God listens to that prayer. You know, I think many times we go to God and we say, God, I'm not willing in this area, but I'm willing to be made willing. Can you do that? That's where you start. God knows your heart anyway. Why don't you start there? Just be willing to be made willing. That's, good. That's the, the good fight, to trust God. Lord, I know there's a part of me that I feel unwilling to let go of and to surrender, but Lord, I'm, I'm willing to be made willing. Help me. We need to move on to the third part of our message this morning, and that is from pride to prayer, the lessons that failure can teach us. And it's found in verses 28 to 32. It's very interesting, I find. Jesus is mostly a disciple-maker. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark is so concerned, and I've shared with you before how there's a, there's a focus on some, Jesus is doing a miracle, he's teaching something, he's, he's doing something, and the crowd, everything's focused on Jesus and his actions, and all of a sudden, Mark takes the camera off of Jesus, and it's on the 12, it's on the disciples. Here's a classic, look at verse 27. Verse 27 ends, but Jesus took the boy by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, that's 27. Don't you think that verse 28 should say, and the boy's father started crying, and the, and the boy's father leaped for joy, and, and the boy looked into Jesus' eyes and knelt down and worshipped him, or, and the crowd started cheering, or the, the, the teachers of the law disappeared, or something. Don't you think 28 should be about what happened? But what's 28 all about? Verse 28 says this. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't I drive? we drive it out? I mean, it's crazy. All of a sudden, it's, it's not important to Mark what happened with the crowd. What's important to Mark is that Jesus is getting the lesson down deep into the disciples' lives. And so in this matter, I'd like to talk about three schools that they had to enter to get their discipleship deeper. And we'll have to enter them too if we're going to grow. And the first school is the school of humility. That you and I, as the disciples, experienced this incredible humility before a watching crowd when they failed to help this young boy. And they come to Jesus and they say, how come we couldn't do this? We failed. And how, how humbled they were. It says in the Bible that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so every one of us have to enter the school of humility in order to grow in our faith, recognize our own inadequacies. And they asked Jesus why they couldn't do it, and he says, he, says, he points to prayer. There are some things that are only accomplished by prayer. And, and I, I've, I've talked to many, I feel as though there's more conversations lately 
in our church about those that are on the brink of maybe coming to know the Lord or those who are resistant to know the Lord and, and we're having conversations or we're praying with, for those people and some of them are hardened and resistant. You know what, I'm so happy that at least we're having the conversations and we're having the prayer for that kind of focus. But I'll tell you, it is so difficult. I've been visiting people for many months now. I've been visiting people every two weeks and, and they're not responding. And I, I, I can only say that there's some things that are only accomplished by prayer. There is a, a key to the heart of every human soul, but it's inside, and it's got to be touched through prayer. And I can't penetrate it through all my arguments and all my philosophizing and all my theologizing. It's not going to penetrate, but God, by his, the prayers of his people, can work from the inside out. That's all I can conclude from this text. And so besides the, the school of humility and failure, there's the school of prayer and faith. There's nothing that demonstrates faith more than praying because you're showing that it's all about him doing the ministry, not you. But besides the school of faith and failure and the school of prayer and faith, there's also the school of reflection. And I think that's a school that we often don't attend. You know, there's a myth in education one of the myths in education is that we learn from our experiences. We, we hear that said to us. We learn from our experiences. But that's a myth. You don't learn from your experiences. You can, you can actually not learn anything from experience without reflecting upon it. I had this demonstrated, Pat and I, when we were in, in Bolivia for those seven years, and we, were, we would host teams, like our team that's going to Bolivia. We would host teams and I, I just recognized a couple of times where I thought there, there were things about the culture and the poverty and the ministry there that was not penetrating. It is possible for a person to finish work on Friday at 5 p.m. and on Saturday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, they get on a plane and they go to Bolivia or India or somewhere else. They arrive 12 or 24 hours later. They get off a plane and they're, they're thrust into this incredible different paradigm, cross-cultural ministry, and they, they, they live it out for two weeks and they're, they're just immersed in this thing. They're in shock sometimes. And they, after two weeks, they get on another plane and 12 or 24 hours later, they come home and Monday morning, they go back to work and without any reflection... They will learn nothing. They can stay the same person that they were before and not be impacted by another group of people in another part of the world and what God wants to teach us through them. They can do that. It's the school of reflection that's going to deeply impact our lives. That's why Jesus slows the disciples down in the second half of Mark. And so look at what happens in verses 30 to 31. This is incredible. Jesus takes a trip with the twelve, and it says he did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He didn't want anyone to know where they were. Why is that? Because this is time for reflection. This is time for some deep, penetrating lessons. And so, if you'll permit me, I'd like to suggest... That, that every one of us go through kind of a cycle of spiritual growth. And it starts with theory at the top, and that's just knowledge. You just know a little bit about God, and, and it's knowledge up here, that theory that is going to be put into practice. 
And so you, you count on God based on what you know about him, whether you learned it from your parents or the Bible or Sunday school or wherever, you just count on God to be, to be faithful, to be true to what you've learned about him in theory. And for the most part, your, your practice and your theory are aligned and everything is fine and rosy. But then sometime, at some point, God is going to take you to a place down deeper where your theory and your practice don't line up. Like the disciples who, whose theory was working fine, but all of a sudden they found someone they couldn't heal. And why can't we drive this one out? What's wrong? And that's when your faith is tested and you go through a challenge. And that testing and challenge will lead you to the fourth place where, where it's called a crisis of faith, Kevin talked about earlier. And, and we need to face that crisis every so often because guess what? You've got to go back full circle back to theory then. Because the crisis makes you to get into the Word of God again, go to God in prayer, figure this out, because you're not going to chuck God out the window. You're going to recognize that if something's got to change, it's got to be me, because God is the changeless one. And so I go back to God, and I re- say, God, I thought that you could, I thought if I did this and this, you'd be doing this. But you're not doing that. What's wrong? Well, because you, got, you had God in the box that you made. God is bigger than any box. And so as we conclude in, in a song, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And, um, I'm going to ask you to ponder where the Lord has you in this cycle of spiritual growth and formation and discipleship. And um, we'll conclude in a minute. Occupy my lowly heart Own it all and reign supreme Conquer every rebel power Let no vice or sin remain That resist your holy war You have loved and purchased me Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised. 
highest heaven, glorify your name through me. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Brothers and sisters, uh, in the first service we had the privilege of, of Pastor Alf uh, pronouncing the benediction, and he's got the gift of benediction, I'll tell you. But I just want to do as he did when he asked us to extend our hands with palms up just now for a moment. And let's, let me have a final prayer for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we come to you with our hands open. And the, the hands are full, Lord, of all that we are. You know us completely. Lord, you know our hearts completely. You know those areas of our hearts where we earnestly, longingly put faith in you and we, we lean upon you heavily, O oh God, faithful one. But you also know, God, those closets of our hearts, those areas where we don't have faith, where we, where we wrestle regularly with trusting you. And Lord, we bring both hands to you. We believe, help us overcome our unbelief. And in this moment, Lord God, each one that has their palms up to you, I ask you, Father, to meet them in both ways, to strengthen the faith they have and to be given that extra grace for the willingness to be made willing, for the grace to be filled up with all the measure of the overflowing grace of Jesus that can even be giving us faith to trust you where we struggle. And so, Lord, with that we pray. And to that end, we live this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.